0: Well, good evening, y'all. Welcome to Center Point. Good to see y'all. Hope you're enjoying this uh, fall weather as much as I am. What a spectacular day the Lord gave us to enjoy. And good to see y'all tonight. Um, we'll continue our study of the book of Nehemiah tonight. Sorry, Ezra, getting ahead of myself. <laughs> Way ahead of myself. Um, Ezra tonight. And, uh, We came off of Ezra chapter 3 last week, which talked about uh, the continued restoration of the Lord's people in Jerusalem, having arrived back, being brought back by the decree of Cyrus. Behind that stands the providence of God, of course, which sends them back to Jerusalem. They uh, are reestablishing the foundations of the temple yet again. They're reestablishing their life as God's people. They construct an altar so the sacrifices can be made. And they made a lot of progress. Uh, They have a worship service to honor and glorify the Lord. And anytime there's gospel progress, what can we expect? We can always expect opposition. And that's really what chapter 4 is all about, opposition to kingdom progress, gospel progress. Satan is always going to try to thwart what God's people are accomplishing by his grace. So in Ezra chapter 4, and hopefully you have a study guide you can follow along with me, I have three points, uh, all of which have to do with opposition. First of all, the opposition, uh, verses 1 through 5. The form, should should say the forms, plural, of opposition, verses 6 through 16. And finally, the temporary, and I want to emphasize the temporary success of the opposition, verses 17 through 23. But what's the uh, big idea here? Uh, the big idea, as I see it, is that kingdom progress or gospel progress will always provoke opposition from the adversary, which requires that we trust God through it. So that being said, uh, let's read God's word together from chapter four. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the return exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel— They approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithradath and Tabiel and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rahum the commander, and Shimshai the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rahum the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of the associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble asnapar deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king, in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. The king sent an answer. To Rehum the commander, and Shemshai the scribe, and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria, and in the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me, and I make a decree, and search has been made, and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it, and mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute Custom and toll were paid. Therefore make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt, until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the herd of the king? Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes letter was read before Rahum and Shemshi the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem, and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius king of Persia this is God's word let's pray together lord we thank you for every word that has proceeded from your mouth we thank you for the way in which you moved prophets and apostles along by your holy spirit as it were to write exactly what you needed for to be preserved for us, for our encouragement and for our growth in grace. Pray that you would apply it to our hearts by your Holy Spirit's power. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, uh, Christian is making a pilgrimage, making a journey toward the celestial city, and he's making it with his friends, and they have stuck with him for a while. But as they become intimidated by the dangers and toils and snares that lay ahead, his friends turn back and don't go with him anymore. So Christian's by himself and he's looking very narrowly down the road on the way to the celestial city. And he sees two ravenous-looking hungry lions in the way. And he thinks to himself, now I see the dangers that mistrust and timorous, those were the names of his friends, were driven back by. And then he was afraid, and Christian himself begins to consider going back and not making the rest of the journey. Because he thought, Bunyan says, that nothing but death was before him. Well, Christian, as you know if you've read that book or or heard it taught Uh, does not have an easy go of it to the celestial city. His pilgrimage is not an easy one, and ours is not an easy one either. And neither do the people of the restoration period have an easy time of it. They have one uh, problem after another that comes their way. They're called literally in this passage the sons of the captivity or the returned exiles. And in this passage, we read about the opposition that came their way, how they responded to it, and the different forms that it takes, and the temporary success of it. So first of all, the opposition itself. Again, this is the time of the restoration, a remnant of the remnant of the Israelites has gone back to Jerusalem. So it's a very small, pitifully small group, just a a mere shadow of its former glory, Very small number. But nevertheless, they've been faithful. They've laid the foundations of the temple again. They've begun the very first steps in reestablishing their worship of God and their lifestyle in Jerusalem as prescribed by his word. And when they have these few steps of success, it provokes opposition from the people around them, the people of the land, as they're called. These people are Samaritans. And they're descendants of people that the Assyrians repopulated the land with after they took the people of Judah and Benjamin into exile uh, back in 721. Now, Judah and Benjamin, of course, are the descendants of Abraham. To Abraham, of course, has been promised many things. A nation will be built A land is given to Abraham and also one descendant, one seed, singular, as Paul will tell us in Galatians, will come from Abraham. And through him, through this one Jew, this one descendant of Abraham, the entire world will be blessed. Of course, we're talking about the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus Christ himself will be a a seed of Abraham and will come and bless the whole world. So when these people of the land are called the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin, which makes up the core of the remnant of God's people, we're also being told that they are the adversaries of Christ, the adversaries of the Messiah. And these people, the Samaritans, have intermarried with the Jews who've been left behind. Not all the people were exiled to to, uh, Assyria. So some were left behind, they intermarried with the Samaritans, and they produced this hybrid race. But that hybrid race is not the problem. The problem is a hybrid religion has grown out of this that's a little bit like Judaism and a lot like paganism. And those two things are oil and water. You can't mix the true worship that God has prescribed in his word with pagan ritual and practice. You just can't do it. So they claim to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel, but they also worship all the other gods of the ancient Near East. Yahweh to them is not the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, sovereign, holy God that we know him to be from his word. To them, he is just a regional deity, so he's on equal footing with all the other ancient Near Eastern uh, little g gods. And so these people, the Samaritans, want to give Yahweh his due along with the pantheon of other gods, all the other idols. Which means, bottom line, that they are a potential snare to the returned exiles. Because if the sons of the captivity, the returned exiles, cozy up to these pagan Samaritans... What's going to happen is very predictable. They're going to lead them right back into idolatry. And what was the whole reason that God's people were taken away into exile to start with? It was their persistent and recalcitrant idolatry. Finally, God judged them for it. And so they have learned something from their time in exile and they are resistant to this offer. So when these people of the land these Samaritans, approach the people of Judah and Benjamin, again, the descendants of Abraham, we are accurately told that whatever these people might say and however they might act, they are actually the adversaries of God's people. They're their enemies. And we know that our adversary, the devil, prowls around, doesn't he, like a roaring lion looking for stragglers by themselves to devour Interestingly, the same word for adversary is related to this Hebrew word. And so we're being told indirectly that the intentions of these people, despite the smiles on their faces and their extended hands of help, their intentions are actually satanic. They originate in the seed of the serpent who rose up against the seed of the woman. So there have always been two kinds of people in the world. Those who follow and believe in the promised seed of the woman and those who follow and believe in the promised seed of the serpent. There's the city of man, as St. Augustine says, and there's the city of God. Those two groups have always existed and always been in enmity with each other. But opposition sometimes comes with a smiling face. Opposition sometimes comes with an out-extended Hand of fellowship and friendship because the devil likes to masquerade as an angel of light. He comes to us in very attractive garb sometimes. So these people approach the descendants of Judah and the descendants of Benjamin, and they offer to help. They say, hey, we notice we've been watching you. We notice you're doing a good thing here. You're rebuilding your city, but you look like you could use a hand. How about we step in alongside you, help you rebuild your city? After all, we worship the same God you do. We're on the same team here, so let's kind of go along to get along. We can lend you a hand. Now, this is an offer that people of Judah and Benjamin can't refuse, right? Whatever their beliefs, a pagan can lay bricks as well as a believer can, right? Why not welcome them in and use them to help? Because after all, who doesn't need a hand doing the Lord's work, right? I've been in ministry 20 years. I've never, ever said to a volunteer, you know what? We've got enough helpers now. Thanks, but no thanks. We'll call you if we need you. No, we always are welcoming helpers. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua are are extremely discerning and wise and cunning here. Uh, As as cunning as, as snakes, but as innocent as doves. They know that these Samaritans, while they claim to worship Yahweh, don't worship him exclusively. And that's the whole key. And that's the rub so often, isn't it? Even in our own day and time. The exclusivity of our faith, that is often the point of friction with the world, isn't it? The world is always bombarding us with those buzzwords. Coexist, tolerate, inclusivity, acceptance, inclusion. But what does our Lord and Savior say? Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. What does he say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I understand that the devotees of the sexual revolution that's running rampant in our world right now, the LGBTQ revolution, are visiting churches in Europe. And they're going in to rate those churches on a scale of one to five according to how accepting they are of what's called sexual diversity. And y'all know what that means. So those that rank lowest on the scale are deemed hostile to LGBTQ folks. They're deemed to be unsafe. And those who rate highest, rating of five, are those that are absolutely celebrating everything about the sexual revolution, preaching it from the pulpits and so forth. And those with a three rating are actually hospitable and welcome and loving to, say, transgender folks, but they go ahead and preach against it from the pulpit. So these people are taking scores, and they're naming names, and they're sharing information, and their goal is not just to silence opposition to the sexual revolution, but to actually promote universal celebration of it, preaching of it. So it'll only be a matter of time before that kind of thing, which is currently happening in Europe, comes to the U.S. So the response of Zerubbabel and Jeshua might seem a little rude to us at first. It might even seem unwise. Why would you refuse help? It doesn't seem very winsome to use that word. But notice how close their words are to the Apostle Paul's and what he says to the Corinthians. Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord does Christ have with Belial? Or what portion does a believer have with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Now, we need to be... Kind to unbelievers. We need to love them. We need to give a cup of cold water to those who are thirsty. We need to give a hot meal to those who are hungry. We need to give a soft answer to those who come at us with wrath. Uh, when we are reviled, we should revile not in return. We should do nothing less than what our Savior says, to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. We're to pray for those that differ from us in their lifestyles and respect them as image bearers of God. But under no circumstances can we ever, ever compromise our beliefs or our practice to accommodate sinful lifestyles. J. Gresham Mation had it right in the early part of the 20th century when he said that there's Christianity and there's liberalism and the two are oil and water. They just don't mix. So Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the other leaders of the father's houses show that same clear unequivocal thinking when they say, you know what, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. Notice how he says that, a house to our God. He's implying there, he's not your God. He is our God, and we alone will build a house to the Lord, the God of Israel. So they're saying if you claim to worship him, but you also worship others along with him, you're compromised in your worship, and it doesn't pass muster with the Lord. You're not really worshiping him. So to worship God Almighty, the God of Scripture, the God of the Bible, is to worship him exclusively. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Y'all seen the, the coexist bumper sticker on cars. And it's one thing to have a coexist bumper sticker. I kind of understand the sentiment. We live in a pluralistic society. We, we have to get along with people of other worldviews. But in terms of a religious philosophy, it, it just doesn't work at all. Because there's no mixing Christianity with paganism. There's no mixing Christianity with Islam, though many have tried. There are two completely different religions. And so we either believe the Bible with all of its hard edges, or we don't. So either Scripture alone is sufficient for faith and practice, or it isn't. Either we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, or we're not. So if we compromise on any of that, then it's, it's all over with. And this is reflected in the stern rebuttal that Zerubbabel and Jeshua give to these Samaritans. So that's the opposition. It takes a very uh, um, sneaky tactic to start off with. But secondly, you have other forms of opposition. That first kind kind of flew under the radar, disguised behind a smile, disguised behind a friendly face, disguised behind an ostensibly genuine offer to help. But once that was refused, then the gloves come off, the true colors are revealed here and we see all kinds of different forms of, of brutal and persistent and zealous opposition against God's people. And we see here a great example of, of political propaganda. What they do is they bribe counselors to disparage the names of the Jews. They try to discourage them, which literally means they try to weaken their hands in their work. They try to interfere with their progress. They make an appeal to the king that the money's gonna run short. Now have to hand it to these men. They know how to talk to the king. They know how to get his attention if you let them rebuild, they're saying, they will not pay tribute. They won't pay custom. They won't pay toll. And what will happen? The royal revenue will dry up and be impaired. So they're saying, King, you're going to be broke if you let them continue building the walls. Now, every board I've ever been a part of, uh, at meetings, people tend to glaze over when you're talking about things like mission statements and retention rates and things of this sort. But When this topic of money comes up, or the lack thereof, boy, everybody sits up and pays attention. And that's the tactic they use here. They get the king's attention uh, through this scare tactic with regard to money. They also appeal to his political power. And they imply that if if the king lets them continue rebuilding, eventually he's going to lose any political clout at all uh, in this whole region beyond the river which is uh, kind of a ridiculous claim to make because by this time, the glory days of the Israelites were long in the rearview mirror. They, they, they didn't have anything of their past military might or, or political strength. Um, they weren't a threat to anyone at this point. But nevertheless, these propagandists were doing their work and they're extremely effective at it. They also sort of bend the truth and make it appear that they, the Samaritans, rather than the Jews are the rightful occupants of the land. They claim that they were there first and that they have squatters' rights and that uh, Cyrus the king was wrong to send the Jews back to repopulate Jerusalem, which of course is not true. God gave the land to his people a long time ago, and the Samaritans, not the Jews, are the outsiders. But they are still very effective with their propaganda. And again, it's not their race that's the problem here, it's their pagan religion, their syncretistic blend of paganism with Judaism. And thirdly and finally, we see the temporary success of their opposition. They're quite, uh, in the the short term at least, quite successful. But I wanna emphasize it's a temporary success, Because that's all that Satan's schemes will ever really be against God's people, temporarily successful, because Christ has already won the battle. So the adversaries of the church can only do what God allows them in his providence to do. Our adversary, the devil, is roaming about like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. And so the king is swayed by the complaints from the Samaritans. But notice that providentially, the king actually leaves a door open to possible change down the road. After all the research and the archives are done, he says, Therefore make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city not be rebuilt until a decree is made by me. Uh, normally with the laws of the Medes and Persians, once it's in writing, it cannot be changed. But the king, providentially by the hand of God, allows this loophole so that later on it actually was changed when more information came to light. So at the point of the spear and the point of the sword, these Jews had to cease and desist their rebuilding of their city. For now, But I want to emphasize again, this is a temporary setback and it lasted for about 15 years where nothing really happened in Jerusalem. Had to put down their instruments and they had to wait on the Lord's timing. But God is always, always, always at work. Even when it seems like nothing is happening, God is still at work. He's teaching his people even through these times to be patient, To pray more fervently, to not rely on themselves, to rely on Him and His timing, and to take their eyes off themselves and their own problems and to put their eyes on Him. Well, I want to go back to the Pilgrim's Progress for a moment. If you read the story, you know that more is coming. Uh, There's a porter at the lodge who's down the road. His name is Watchful, and he's watching Christians' encounter with the lions from a distance. And he sees Christian halt out of fear. And he sees Christian hesitate. And he sees Christian almost deciding to turn back. But Watchful sees something that Christian doesn't. He notices something that Christian is completely unaware of. And that is that the lions are chained. Christian can't see the chains. He can only see the lions. And so he's scared and he's intimidated and he's about to turn back. And so watchful because he sees that the lions are chained, cries out to Christian, is your strength so small? Don't fear the lions for they are chained. They're placed there for trial of your faith where it is and for discovery of those who have no faith. Keep in the middle of the path and no hurt will come to you. And so Christian Hearing these crucial words, this instruction stays to the middle of the straight and narrow path. And though the lions roar at him and try to get at him, they cannot because they are chained and they can't harm him. So then Watchful sees Christian go on, trembling for fear of the lions, but taking good heed to the directions of the porter. He heard the lions roar, but they did him no harm. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, the Lord says. So, the writer of Hebrews tells us, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? As uh, Martin Luther wrote in that beautiful hymn, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still, and he shall and does win the battle. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the great truth that you are with us and because you are with us, you promise never to leave us nor forsake us. Uh, We still have fears. We still have trials. We still have difficulties that seem much bigger than we are. But those are to teach us to trust you and we thank you, Father, that uh, we can depend upon your grace and that nothing will ultimately harm us eternally because we are in your hands and we are safe uh, though outwardly we may be killed, we may pay a, a steep price for following you. Ultimately, uh, we are safe and secure eternally with you. And so we, we thank you for that great promise. Pray that we might continue uh, courageously uh, to follow you and the things that you lead us to do in your church and help us to not fear the enemy. We thank you that you are greater than he is. Greater that he that is in us than he that is in the world. Praise you for that truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.